Hello and welcome to the Events Podcast, where we help you build your events empire by building profitable events while having fun at the same time. So we've had a bit of a break over the summer, really since the start of the year, you know. I was really busy with my company Apps Events during the pandemic. Uh, I talked about that on the last call with James. You know, we, we transitioned to doing a lot of work for Google, running a lot of online events, doing different stuff. Um, so I was just really busy, but I've really missed doing the events podcast and we're still getting great views. We're actually a top 10% of all podcasts in the world still, which is amazing as it's a very niche thing. But I want to say a couple of things. Firstly, if you enjoy the podcast, please get in touch with me. Like uh, most people don't give me any feedback and, and getting feedback really encourages me to make more episodes. Just email me at dan at appsevents.com, D-A-N at appsevents.com. Even better, if you can give us a review, uh, anywhere you listen to the podcast, please stop right now in iTunes, Spotify, Pocket Cast, wherever you are, and please leave us a review if possible, five stars, of course, would be great. Back to the podcast. So we, we really focus on helping event entrepreneurs run amazing events, and that could be people who run events companies, but also just as many people, maybe more, are entrepreneurs who just run events as part of their business. You know, they might run events to promote something else, they might run meetups, they might run one big conference a year. This is the kind of people I want to help, you know, because I, I run events myself. So, you know, this podcast is kind of like therapy for me where I get help and assistance on how to run the event. So please, again, leave some feedback. Uh, and secondly, obviously there's a lot of costs associating with this podcast. I've got two people who help me out with editing and graphics and everything else. So if you're a sponsor, possibly you're a software company who um, sells to the event industry, then and you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, like I said, it's a top 10% podcast, please get in touch. Uh, we'd love to talk to you, danapsevents.com, and it'd be great to talk. So thank you very much. Uh, and now on to the interview. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Mark uh, Hirschberg. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Mark. Is that right, Hirschberg? You are, yep. Fantastic. And Mark's the author of a book called The Career Toolkit. Mark got in touch and he listened to one episode and wanted to talk about his opinions about creating engaging events. And he's also got a lot of thoughts about networking, negotiation, etc. So it'd be good to have a chat and find out his story and get some tips. So how are you doing, Mark? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show today. Cool. You're, you're in New York, Mark. Is that what, what's the story? Are you are you from New York originally? Like, what what uh, what's the reason you're there? Born in New York, I grew up in the suburbs of New York and Chicago. I lived in Boston for a number of years, but I love New York City. I love the energy. I love the intensity, and so I moved back here about 17 years ago, and it's right. Been- and you live in you, you live in the Midtown Manhattan. Do, do you have a family or by yourself, or what's your no, I'm, I'm unfortunately by myself, still looking okay. for my waiting so, to have. Oh, yeah. No, the, re- the reason I was asking is I just like, I can't imagine having children in like, I mean, I know people do it. There's tons of people have kids in like Manhattan, but it must be like, uh, I guess you just get used to it. I just, you just, I guess you just get used to, um, you know, getting buses everywhere and, and walking traffic and all that kind of stuff. Well, that part is easy. You do get used to it. Everything is super close. You can get anywhere and everywhere. You don't need to worry about finding parking. But raising kids in the city, that is challenging because space is at a premium and everything is super expensive. Yeah, it's just a different world, you know. Like, I remember, like, uh, I was at a Google conference in Manhattan and all the kids, I was at a Starbucks in the morning getting a coffee. All, all the sort of kids were queuing up to get a, get a Starbucks. And I was like, he's got so much money. Like, I would never have been able to have, like, had the money to go and get a Starbucks. Well, there wasn't even Starbucks when I was young, but like, just a different world in Manhattan. 
the city is good until I have kids, and then maybe once the kids are out of the house and I'm retired. But yeah. in the middle, yeah, I think for me, raising kids in the suburbs is definitely a preference. Yeah, I've been to New York with kids, and it was it was all right, you know. But it's like man, they were young, you know. You've really got to watch just the traffic and everything. But I guess you, you get quite streetwise living. Well, you grew up in New York, you know. You get quite streetwise and get used to you know navigating the city. I guess don't you? You do. Yeah, and it's funny when I went off to college the kids who came from New York City versus the kids who came from suburban areas, you could see a difference in how they interacted in the city and just their level of street savvy. Yeah, yeah. So, so what's your story? You, let's, let's go through your background, Mark. I, I, I don't know much about it, so I'm, I'm learning as well. So like, yeah, tell me, what's, what's your background? Like, what, do you want to start from college and then go into what you did after? I'll give a kind of two-minute summary and we can dive oh, in. You can story. talk longer. Yeah, no, 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 no rush. You know, like, no, no need to rush. So I came out of MIT. I have a couple degrees in physics and electrical engineering, computer science. My graduate work was in cryptography, which is used for cybersecurity. And I began by working at startup companies. Now, I realized early on that I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. And to do that wasn't just about being the best engineer. There were a number of skills that I needed to learn that no one had taught me. Leadership, yeah. communication, networking, negotiating. So I had to develop those skills as I went on my path. And for the few decades of my career, I have primarily been building traditional startups in all sorts of spaces, from labor marketplaces to lead generation, online marketing, cybersecurity, whole bunch of different things. I've helped a couple of Fortune 500s who wanted to innovate. They wanted to act like a startup and spun out some business units. I also helped launch some teaching programs, one at Harvard Business School, and one at MIT. Now the MIT one came about, I mentioned I had to develop these skills in myself. As I was doing so, I realized these skills, the leadership, the networking, this is not just for executives, it is for everyone. Executives, employees, founders, we all need these skills. So as I was learning myself, I began to upskill my team. And as I was doing that, MIT had done surveys of companies and heard these are the skills they want to see in people they hire, but they can't find it anywhere. So MIT wanted to put together a program to instill these skills in our students. When I heard about that, I said, you know, I have these tools, these things I've developed for my team. I'm happy to share it with you. And I thought that would be a one-off meeting. But instead, they asked me to help flesh out the class and create some of the modules. So I helped to create the program. Then they asked me to teach. So alongside the top Sloan and MIT professors, myself and others like me who are practitioners teach as well. So I've been doing that in parallel to building all these tech companies in parallel for the past two decades. I've also taught at MIT and elsewhere. And then of course I've been doing speaking and I turned into the book, the career toolkit, essential skills for success that no one taught you. And I have the companion app as well. So I've had this dual career. So, so when you say your team, there's a lot of stuff in there, you know, like I, I don't even know what stuff like, so you see, you, you had a team, like you did, you, you did various startups. Did, did you just like hire people for each one? Or you had a team that stayed with you? Like, cause it, I, it sounds like you were doing a lot of different stuff. Did, so were, were you like a, you know, like a private equity type thing with a bunch of people working with you? Or you were just doing different startups, hiring people? Like who was, who was the team you had that you're talking about? I would go into different startups and I would have different right. teams. Sometimes I'd be oh, brought so in. So you would join an existing startup. Or sometimes there were times where I was employee number seven and I'd have to hire up my team. So I've right, got it. Really got it. 
so, so, but you're just a freelancer. You you work for yourself. not just a freelancer, but you know, you you, you work for yourself, and then you just done jumped in in and out of different things. Is that how you operate? Well, I've done it different ways. There are times yeah, where yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm on the team. Sometimes I'm there with the founders, and I'm an executive, and we try to build up sure. for a few years. Other times, I work as a fractional CTO, which means I come in perhaps for six months just to turn things around or get them to a certain place. Or even for some companies, I'll do it part-time because they don't yet need a full-time CTO, but they need some experience, just not full-time. So I've done- That's interesting. Hearing a lot more, I'm in this entrepreneurs group called the DC, and we, uh, there's a lot, of pe- a lot of people talking about fractional you know, integrators, fractional CFOs, fractional CTOs. It's, it's becoming a big thing. You know, like, if you look at me, like, we've got a you know, small team, like nine people, all, all remote. And, and if you, like nowadays, I'm like, instead of hiring people, I'm often just finding contractors off of work or contractors off other places and getting an ongoing relationship with them and working with them rather than hire, like, for example, you know, I don't need, I don't need a full-time graphic designer, podcast editor, things like this, but I need continuous work every week, so many hours a week, you know? So I'm, I'm kind of working much more in this way now with, with people on a, on a kind of, you know, open agreement. We log so many hours or different ways, but, you know, essentially they're not a team member, but, you know, we, we work together every month. And I think it's, it's the future in a lot of ways. It is. And let's take a more common model, the fractional CFO. For a small business, you might be 20, 40, 60 people. Say, okay, well, we've got some invoices coming in. We have some expenses. Maybe you have a full-time accountant or bookkeeper, or maybe part-time. And that takes care of most of your needs. But that accountant or bookkeeper can't quite do that high-level strategic planning, whether it's yeah. fundraising, whether it's planning out your budget. You need a little extra help at the high level, but certainly not full-time. Yeah. And a finance company, if you're a finance company, you'd probably need that full time. Most companies call themselves tech companies. They are not because the tech they're doing, this isn't super innovative. They say, oh, well, we just need to build a website that integrates with a few data feeds or we need to build an app or these small things. And so they'll have a team of engineers, perhaps in-house, perhaps outsourced, and they do a good job, but you need that higher level strategy, that higher level, how do we fit this into our overall company strategy and planning? And that's where I need someone like me, but again, just a couple hours per week and not full-time. How does your, I'm always fascinated by how people work. I mean, how does your week look like? I mean, does it just, does it depend on the project you're working on or is it like, because obviously I presume, you, you know, you're making good money. If you can afford to live in Manhattan, you know, like it's, you're living in a very high, probably the most, well, one of the most expensive cities in the world. Like, are you, are you just working on individual projects or do you have ongoing retainers with different people or, and, and do you jump between them? Like, like I'm curious, like there's a few questions. How do you plan your week and, and, and how do you kind of move between different tasks and stuff? So it varies at different stages of my life. Yeah. There were times where I was full-time at a company and okay, I'm doing not 40 hours. It's usually 50 yeah. some a startup and that's it. And then I do some things on the side, like teaching at MIT and the, Companies were very flexible about, hey, if you want to teach at MIT, that's good for us as well. Now, and, and recently, is, that remote, is that remote teaching for MIT? I would go on site, but it wasn't, for example, a full semester, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It was more of a special program. I'd go in and do some intensive weeks. And yeah. so I could, I could manage my schedule that way. Great. Now, more recently with the pandemic, my last startup, it shut down uh, for reasons I can't really go into because there's still some things coming from it uh, that should hopefully be positive for us are in the works. Right. But I said, well, this is a good opportunity. I have my book coming out. 
I know I need to do a book tour. So I said, let me go back to fractional CTO work. Yep. Then of course we had a, a pandemic and you know, with the pandemic, all right, it's going to be a virtual tour and virtual promotion, but that's great. Gave me flexibility for most of the last two years. It would be meetings with clients. I could do that from home and going on podcasts or news segments. I could do that from home, but it was a very checkered schedule. It was, oh, I got to jump into this client. Now I have that client. Now I have a podcast yeah. and it was chaotic, but doing startup, you're used to that type of jumping from one thing to the next, particularly if you're an executive at a startup. And startups, were you, did you have any exits or were you involved in early stage or what happened there? Yeah, I've had three successful exits. A few yeah. others, I suppose you call them an exit. No one got money, but the Well, company... you see, I've, I've started two software companies and I've sold them both. But honestly, it wasn't a huge amount of money. It was like, it was technically an exit, but in both cases, and we did sell the business. But, you know, like how much work we put in, was it really worth it? You know, I don't know, probably not. I've had three exits where I'd say they were they were good. Now, the first, I was early in my career, so I didn't see much of it. But the other yeah. two, uh, we had some good exits. I'm still waiting to see what's happening with that third one. And any companies we would have heard of? None of, none of the startups, because I tend to do a lot of enterprise, a lot of B2B types of startups, so they're not household names. The Fortune 500s, uh, who I helped, one was Sears, the other was NBC. Both of those are right. health names here in the US. Yeah, sure, sure. Cool, so um, the, the book first, I guess. How did you just, like, how did you come to write the book? And, and like, how, how did you go about it? Did you get a publisher? Did you self-publish? I know it's, we've had some people asking about sort of writing books and stuff and that. I know now it's much easier. Like, you can self-publish, pay an editor, get it out there, you know, get, get a... I, whatever it is, an ISBN number, whatever it is. Like, what was your approach with this book? Now, first, for anyone thinking of writing a book, I'm going to give you a resource. If you go to Cognosco Media, C-O-G-N-O-S-C-O media.com and go to the resources page slash resources. When I was working on my book, I'm used to going to lots of different industries. All my startups, I go in lots of different industries. I have to learn the industry. It's not just, well, I'm going to build the technology. I mean, I understand how's the industry work because I'm often running product as well as technology. Yeah. And when it came to doing my book, it's the same thing. I read about 1500 articles on every aspect of publishing from how to find an agent to how to come up with a good title, how to pick your trim size. That's the size of the book. How big should your book be? Which if you're self-publishing, you have to do those details. No one teaches you about that. They tell you how to make a compelling story. So I looked at every little detail and on that page, I have the 200 or so most useful articles organized by topic from finding okay, an agent, cool. from marketing your book, from where the tax implications, they're all organized. And I share that with other writers. My book has an unusual origin story. I wasn't trying to write a book. I was trying to write up notes for my class. Now my class, it's not me and other people lecturing at the students. It's very hands-on interactive, which is great, but also means the students aren't taking a lot of notes. And yeah. for years, I was pressing MIT, we need to put some notes together for the students and we should share this with other schools. It never happened. So as I was traveling a lot for work in 2019, I thought, let me just write up some notes for the students. And I really thought I'd be writing 20 pages of notes. Well, 20 became 40, became 80. And once it passed 100, I said, you know, I think this is actually a book. And that's yeah. why I got down the path of writing a book. 
Okay, cool. And, uh, and did you self-publish or did you get a publisher? How did you do it? I had looked at going with publishers. In fact, publishers wanted to publish a previous manuscript I had written years ago. And when I looked at the industry, I did not want to go down that route. Now, there were three reasons I chose not to. One was control. And I've heard some horror stories. I know one woman who has a graphic design background hated the cover so much. She said, look, I can't stop you from publishing the book, but you can't put my name on it. They eventually yeah. relented and actually let her yeah. give a few comments and redo the cover. But you, you give up control. I wanted control on this. I'm an entrepreneur. We're used to having control. Second was timing. And if you give it to someone else, the timing is completely out of your control. It usually takes a couple of years. And I was trying to do this pretty quick. And then third, if you look at from almost a financial return standpoint, now first, never write a book to make money. You make yeah. money because it promotes you for other things, for speaking, for other services. You don't do it because your book sales are going to be big. But Although even, I would say in my group that I do know people who are making really good money off self-publishing novels and things. I do know, they've written a lot, but, but they're, they're making an income off it. You, know, you can do it, I think. You, okay, that, that's impressive. That is the exception because here are the yeah, numbers. Yeah, yeah. The average traditionally published book, at least in the U.S., sells about 3,000 copies, traditional yeah. publishing. The average self-published book sells about 250 copies. Yeah. Now, the exception, of course, when you're doing it for free on Amazon or 99 cents, different yeah, set of numbers, sure. but when you're charging an actual amount, the average book does very poorly. Yeah. But I looked at, and I understand, having done startups, one thing we teach people when you're doing a tech startup, good marketing of a mediocre product will typically win out over mediocre marketing of a good sure. product. And I knew I did the book. It's not just about putting together a good book. Yes, I need to do that. It comes down to marketing. And unless you are a big name, unless you're a celebrity or you just came out of some political office and you have some yeah. timely book, they're not really going to market your book. So it's yeah. all on you. And I said, you know, I'm doing all this effort. Why am I doing that? If I'm giving up control, if I'm giving up the lion's share of profits, I'd rather keep that control because I can sure. go get my head or I can go do everything else. There's a fourth reason as well that if I had pushed, I might've been able to get past the publishers on this. I created an app for my book, a free companion app, which is a new thing. I actually have a patent on it and we're putting out a version for other authors. And there's a problem that we get when we write books, which is that you read a book like mine, any business book, even self-help book, you say, wow, there's some great advice. And then you forget it all two weeks later. And our job as authors, it's not to get you to buy the book. Yes, do that. But we want you to learn, to change. That doesn't work if you forget. So yeah. I created a companion app, but publishers, a few of them were getting nervous saying, wait, you're taking the content from your book and you're putting it in the app. This is going to undercut our sales. Yeah. I actually don't think it is, but that was making some of them nervous. Got it. So... So the book, like what, what benefits, because obviously it could be a good transition to talking about, about events, obviously it's the events podcast. I mean, you mentioned getting speaking gigs and stuff. Was that something like, how did, like, that's, did, did people contact you after they read the book or did you reach out to people and say, hey there, look, I've got this book. Would you like me to speak out of that? Well, what was the process of, of you getting involved in speaking at events? Well, I had been doing events 
long before the book. Now, some of right. it was speaking at technical conferences as a CTO, but then when people would hear, I've been teaching skills at MIT, it's referred to as MIT's career success accelerator. People yeah. would hear, oh, wait, careers, this is something we like. They hear a topic, networking, negotiating. There's plenty of leadership people out there. You can find lots yeah, of yeah. leadership speakers. But for these particular skills, they say, wow, we don't hear a lot of people talking about it. And we know we need this. Everyone says, I wish I was better at networking, wish yeah. I was better at negotiating. So that started getting me lots of talks. I wasn't even actively doing it. And I started to, to do some, some more of it as the book came out and I looked in the world of, of publishing, I understood publishing and speaking really goes hand in hand. So I figured, okay, I, I like doing speaking. I don't want to be a full-time speaker, just like I don't want to be a full-time university professor. I don't yeah. want to do things full-time, but they're great. They just energize me. I love being on yeah. stage. I love engaging with the audience. I love teaching as well. But of course, it's been very different the past two years. Most of it's been virtual. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to come back to talking about, because obviously you've seen a lot of events and what people could do to make them more engaging. But first of all, for, like to be a speaker, like what advice would you give to people that want to be a paid speaker? You know, like I've, I've spoken at events. I've, I've always just done it for free because I'm, you know, back, you know, usually nothing came from it. But sometimes it's a case of, you know, you could get future work or more connections and things. I've, I've never tried to do it as, as a money-making thing, but what, what is like people that want to do it to make money, what's the, um, how would they go about like, you know, promoting themselves and, and go about like, you know, just, just how would they approach the whole project? Great question. All right. There's a couple steps to this. First is to understand your business model. Now I mentioned most authors don't make money from books. You noted yeah. there are some who do and there are, but most don't. Yeah. And so when you write a book, the question that was asked to me when I went to a friend and said, I think I'm writing a book, I need advice. She said, what is your goal? Because yeah. for some people, they're writing a book, and this will relate to speaking. They're writing the book because they have a business and they're saying, well, this helps me stand out. It makes yeah. it, oh, I'm an author. It gives me credibility. In yeah. some cases, that book is a leave behind. It's a business card. Hey, I hope you hire me to do your tech stuff. By the way, here's my book. You know, read it, see what I have to say about tech. And go, oh, yeah, you know, Mark, he seems to know what he's talking about. Let's go hire him. Yeah. It could be used that way as well. Some people just say, sure. I just want to get it out. And those are different motivations. Now, when you speak, what's your business model? Is it, I want to make lots of money for my speaking? Or is it, when I get on stage and speak, people say, oh, this guy, Dan, he knows what he's talking about. We got to hire him for our company. Yeah. So you can give away speaking for free. It's just a sure. form of so understand yeah. your model. Let's assume, however, you want to make some money from, from speaking. Yeah. A few things have to happen. First, you better know what you're talking about. You better have some content. You better be interesting. You better have something to say. And you yeah. have to deliver it well. Now, there's different types of speaking. There's keynote speaking. There's the inspirational talk. Rah, rah, and everyone gets excited versus more of a workshop or let's come out of this and now you know how to do X. There's yeah. different types of talks. Then there's different audience sizes that you're going to. Are you going to the conferences? Are you going to the companies? Are you going to both? Maybe you're targeting yeah. a certain group, colleges, for example, or people within the financial industry. So understand who your market is. You've got your content. You've got your market. Hopefully you've crafted well. That means 
basic things that you're um, not, uh, you know, as, um, as, as, I'm, as I'm speaking um, I, and I'm just not coming across yeah. well. You gotta get your speaking done using the stage. Then you have to go out and market yourself. And for many people, that means starting out doing it for free. Yeah. And that builds up your reputation. That gives you a chance to practice, to, in, to work on your craft, to get that feedback. So there's nothing wrong with doing it for free. But then you start to move up and you build your reputation and word gets around and people start to reach out and say, yeah, I heard yeah. you were great. And that's how most people do it. Definitely. I think it's definitely, it's a numbers game, isn't it? Like you've got to, well, you've got to, you've got to get the hours in. You've got to, if you don't, if it's just something you do now and again, you're likely to make a success about it. You've got to be out presenting, improving, meeting more people that will invite you. You know, I think, I think that's, that's a big part of it. It's just keeping some momentum behind it as well. And here's the thing, just like I said, with an author or with a startup company, you can't just say, I built a good product. If I build it, they will come. You have yeah. to market and sell. I've been on hundreds of podcasts. So people hear about my book. Same thing when you're a speaker, I still do some cold outreach. I'm still reaching out saying, hey, I'm a speaker. I can talk yeah. about this stuff. Think about me for your next event. Because unless you are probably one of the very top speakers, unless you're a celebrity level speaker, all of us have to keep working, have to keep marketing. And that's what people forget. It's fun to be up on stage, but for every hour you're on stage, you've got another five to 10 hours of prep work before that event. And then you have dozens of hours, scores of hours trying to land that event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, you did cold outreach to me to come on this, and, and it worked because here we are, here we are talking. You know, you did a good job. You know, I, I get. I mean, this. I've been very casual about this podcast. I'm actually going to put some effort to make it more professional, and you know, even try to make some money out of it. You know, but but the vast majority of people that contact me are like, you get a lot of, you get a lot of. Um, there's a lot of these agent podcast agents now representing people like you who want to get on podcasts, and they're pretty crap most of them. You know. And it's, it's almost always somebody who has like some event software and they want to promote it, you know, which, which is like, you know, fair enough. You know, I've, I've had software, you want to market it. Um, but then, and then, you know, I don't think they're thinking about what's in it for me, you know, because like someone's going to come on and promote his software. Great. You know, like it's, it's fantastic for them. What's the thing, you know, I was even thinking I could even do some paid episodes where, you know, because I could charge, charge people. Then like, is it really going to be interesting anyway? You know, they've got to have something interesting to say. You know, which they probably do. A lot of these guys probably do have. They've got a lot of interesting observations. But I think most people that contact podcast guests, like, if you've got something to, if you're trying to sell something, it just makes it hard. I mean, obviously you're trying to sell your book, right? But it's not like that's a, it's a low cost item. It's not, you know, you're not. It's, it's not a big deal, you know, for people if, if they buy it or not. You know, they they're gonna, they want to get some tips from from you basically. Here, here's the thing. You're you're definitely hitting the nail on the head. It's what you're coming in with. Now, yeah, I have a book to sell. Everything else on my website is free. I have all sorts of free downloads, free programs, free app. I give it all away. And I come on the show with the mentality, how can I deliver value to your audience? If I do that, some people say, hey, I should buy the book. But I'm not. You haven't heard me say, oh, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. That's not yeah. what I'm here to do. And what now I get as a CTO, I get a lot of cold outreach. I get people saying, buy my software. I get people saying, hire people because I'm a recruiter. I get recruiters saying, oh, I see you're a technical person. Let me place you because I can make money. Every one of those things is about what can I get as a salesperson? It's about me. It's about I want to sell you yeah. I make money. 
And that's a terrible way to start. Now I have to do some cold outreach as well, but my yeah, cold me too. Out- I do it. I'm going to do it since today. In fact, <laughs> my cold outreach to you was, Hey, I think I have something valuable for your audience and yeah. it might not even be my book. When I reach out to events, I don't say, hi, I'm Mark and I'm a speaker and you should hire me. Yeah. I hope you do that someday. But I start out with, here's something that I think is useful to you. In fact, if some of what we're going to talk about as I share, here are some ideas to help you be more successful. Yeah. And that's, that's a pitch. You can delete it. You can ignore it. You can take it and never talk to me again. But when I start out saying, I'm thinking about your needs, not my needs of getting hired, it's a better start to any relationship. Yeah, definitely. What would you then? So you've obviously done what you, you obviously talked about negotiation and sales. Like if you were going to monetize a podcast, what approach do you think you would take? It's to get a paid advertiser. I could definitely get, you know, there's plenty of, of events, platforms that are contacting me who, who would sponsor, I think. Um, do you think that is a good way to do it, to do some ads? Or, you know, there's obviously Patreon and things, which I'm not really at the level to do anything like that. Like what, what, what do you think is it? What have you seen that works well for podcast monetization? Getting, getting some free consulting in. There are three nice. ways I've seen to monetize a podcast. And it comes down to what's your model. Now, one is yeah. ads or sponsorship. If you just have enough audience, people will pay it again in front of them. Second is you use it to sell yourself whatever services you have. If you build up to that audience, sure. they'll start to hire you. They get to know you. The third, and this is a very subtle technique. People think about podcast as lead generation for yourself, for, from your audience, right? How do I just, my audience hears me enough, they hire me. Here's another more subtle technique. It is lead gen against the people coming on. Lead gen against your guests. So for example, if let's say I had a uh, tech services company, let's say I had, I'm just gonna make this up. I've got a company, we got a hundred engineers and we build software. So then what I would do is create a podcast and I would get on as my guest CTOs, maybe COOs, CEOs, most likely CTOs, CIOs, people who would potentially hire me. And I get them on my podcast and you can build this whole funnel system where I get them on. It's not just, well, come on, show up. Great. Thanks. See you later. But it's a system of come through and I'm going to get to know you and we're going to build this relationship. And so after you've been on the podcast, we've now, we've talked to each other a couple of times. We get to know each other. And then what happens is six months from now, you say, Hey, you know, we need to hire an outside services team. Who do we know? Oh, that Mark guy. Hey, yeah, he was good. We trust him. We have that relationship. So I've started to see podcasters, they will build it. They don't even care about their audience, except that the audience helps bring on the guests and they're really targeting the guests as their potential customers so that's another option that's interesting because like the the issue with this podcast not the issue but the reality of this podcast is i've got nothing to sell this audience that's the problem like i when i started this podcast we we we, we, one of the SaaS companies i did we made an events platform which we sold pretty quickly you know again not for a huge amount of money but we sold it and so i started a podcast thinking cool you know um we'll, we'll promote this platform now that that was a side business you know my main business is apps events. We're, we're a Google partner. We work with, with schools all around the world. So that's my, and, and I've actually got another podcast with, with a co-host, John Mixon, and that's called the International Schools Podcast. And that's super focused. Our audience are people that work for international schools, IT managers, you know, 
CTOs and tech directors of schools in America, the UK. It's a very focused audience. And, and uh, obviously the guests we can sell to and, and the people listen. I mean, we're not selling, but it's, 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 it's like there's a secondary benefit of that thing. The thing about this podcast is it's like, it's interesting for me to learn how to run better events because I, I run events as part, as part of my business. It's, we're not just, we're doing a lot less events now, but we are still running conferences and, and things. But I don't have anything to, to, to sell this audience. You know, I like, I just, that's why I've kind of done a few more kind of general business chats as well because it's just interesting to meet people, you know. But um, so I guess that's my problem, you know. I, there's nothing to sell. So maybe that means advertising is, is the way, I don't know. But you, you never know how one thing can turn into another yeah. If you meet interesting people, you hear about interesting ideas, it's how I wasn't planning to do the book, but I did the book and then the book led to the app and now I've got the app and that's a side business that's spinning out. So one yeah. thing leads to another, build an audience, build quality content. You will find a way to monetize later. It's interesting, you know, because like, like, like you mentioned, I, I had a couple of small hiatuses, but I've always got back to it and you know it when you get just demotivated, you look, you look at your kind of Podbean starts and it's like, oh, 60 people listened to this yesterday. And it's like, and I hadn't even recorded for a month. And you think, yeah, that's great. You know, like 60 people, who are they? Who are all these people, you know? And some of them, you know, get in touch by email. So it is cool. Like it's, it's, it gets you out in the world, doesn't it? Like even if there's, I don't have a concrete thing for this, but it, it does get you out. You get to meet people, you get known. And I'm sure there'll be benefits kind of down the line, you know, as well. Yeah, to your point, I have more fun when I'm standing in a real room, even if there's just 10 people and I'm doing a tiny workshop, than when I'm doing a thousand people, but virtual as we've had to do yeah, last sure. year. I'm just looking at that green dot and you don't get that connection to people. You don't know if it's no, working. I've had enough of virtual meetings. I, even though we run, we run online training, I like virtual conferences. And this, is, this is a good way to obviously finish. It's late for you in New York. I want to talk a bit about you know, running engaging events. I mean, first of all, virtual ones. I talked, I did a solo episode a couple of weeks ago and I've kind of had enough of virtual conferences. And I know a lot of people think they're great and there's a lot of platforms there which do facilitate networking. I've just had enough of staring at a computer screen like this. I do it all day anyway, you know, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm an in-person conference event. That, that's all I'm interested in personally. I'm not sure about you. I much rather in person. I think virtual does have its place and will continue to do so as does hybrid. For one thing you can do, Imagine a conference. Imagine running a half-day conference. Once we're back to more normal and traveling, you might say, hey, this would be an interesting conference, but I don't want to have to fly halfway across the country to do it. Oh, but it's half-day. I can just do it virtually. So I yeah. think there's some value there. Doing some hybrid, there are things that you can do when you're virtual that aren't as easy in person. So there's some yeah. things you can have. In fact, that's one of the things I talked about is to actually do, you can take your conference and extend it. So here's one of the challenges we have as conference planners. You think about your event 365 days a year. As soon as your big annual conference is done, you're thinking about, okay, what's the next event? Yeah. Now, maybe you have a few in the year, or maybe it's now we start planning out the dates of the next event, booking the hotel, planning everything as we're doing the wrap-up. Your audience, they're thinking about your event four days a year, maybe the yeah. day they register and then the three days they're there. They don't care about it, except yeah. while they're there. You wish they were more engaged. And so one way you can do that is to do, in addition to that live in-person event, is to have some virtual events. And so what yeah. we're seeing speakers like myself will say, here's what we're going to do. 
we'll come, I'll do the keynote. Great, we do the keynote and maybe it's purely live or maybe it's hybrid, but then we're going to do follow-ups. And it might be things, there's different ways you can do this. One is let's take the Q&A and what I'm going to do is take some of those key questions and I will do three articles. So for the next three weeks or three months, you're gonna send out an article from your keynote person say, oh, hey, Keynoter had more to say, and this is what we were talking about. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Another option is to do smaller virtual follow-ups. So what we do, it could be for everyone. It could just be for your yeah. gold-level attendees, however you want to do it. Okay, do the keynote. I do some Q&A. We find that there might be some themes or topics. I'm then going to do six smaller workshops, 30-minute yeah. virtual. It's a workshop or it's a Q&A. It's a small group. Obviously, that really can only be done virtually because we can't yeah. get everyone to fly in again. But it's so easy. And for me as a speaker, okay, it's another three hours, but it's three hours sitting at home. I didn't even have to get in a cab. So it's not that much extra work, but provides a lot of extra value for your audience yeah. and gauges them beyond that initial one-time event. Got it. That's, yeah, that's definitely interesting. I think, um, yeah, the follow-up stuff, what you just said is interesting. Also, the hybrid thing, you know, having... Just having more, if, if you can, if you're making enough money to, to have someone to film it and, and do it professionally, then you can have extra attendees with a hybrid option as well. You know, that, that's another way. It's just extra ticket revenue, isn't it? And I do think over the years, both live and online, when we can make it more interactive. Now, when I'm on stage, it's great because I can feel the audience. Are they following along? Are they getting lost? And I can adjust. And I can't do that on a virtual screen. Just yeah. You can give me that Brady Bunch screen of faces, but just you can't read them as well. On the other hand, we can do the instant polling online. That's really easy. Yes. We can do some live chat and we can have the person, the production manager, can even feed into me, hey, here are some trending things. Why don't we talk about this in the Q&A? We don't do that as well live. There are some tools to do yes. it. They have been widely adapted. So I think if we can take in some technology, whether it's online or whether it's in person, to make it more interactive, I think it can get a lot more interesting. Definitely. Now, what, what things have you seen from, just from, let's go back to in person, you know, that's the, the main topic here. What, what, you mentioned about, you've, you know some things about making events more engaging. Like what, what, what would you want to talk about there? What, what, what observations have you had that, things people can that have worked well in, in, in live events or things people can improve. Here's the key thing. It ain't your content. Yeah. And this is what killed us because traditionally it's been get those big keynote speakers and get these people doing talks and everyone comes to get that. Now that was true 20 years ago. I think back to when I was starting and yeah. back in the nineties, a little more than 20 years, I went to a conference to learn things. Yeah, because it was that or the monthly magazine I would get. Sure. But now anything I'm going to hear at your conference, I've seen it in a blog. I've read about it in an article. There was a YouTube video. There was a podcast about it. I can pretty much get all that content elsewhere. So if all you're offering is content, then you know what? This is not necessarily cost effective for me. I will either get elsewhere or I'll just do the, the online version and I'll watch all the presentations at double speed and don't have to fly yeah. and that's much more time efficient. So you need to do things that draw people to the event. And there's two reasons. One is that's your selling point. The other is we all know 
people remember, there's a famous thing, they remember less about what you say and more how you make them feel. Yeah. Do you remember what you learned at that conference three years ago? I don't. There's a handful of things that stood out as interesting across countless conferences I've gone to. But I would say that's the key thing though. You, you might get one thing from an event and it's like, wow, that's, that's amazing. That's what's like, that's changed things, you know? Yes. And, and I do, that's my standard. If I can get one good thing from a conference, it yeah, may yeah, have been yeah. a while. But if I had a great experience, we say, wow, I really enjoyed that conference. Sure. This is why we do things at big conferences. We bring in the, um, we bring in some big band to play, for example, or going at tech conferences. I used to go to the Java One conference and they had the game room set up and it was just late yeah. at night. I remember there were just tubs of candy bars and you could play these online video games. People yeah, loved yeah. it. So we need to do experiences. Now the experiences people want, there's a couple different ones we can do. First is networking. Number yeah. one, people want to go to an event to network. So well, we have the coffee breaks. People are terrible at networking. So there's a few things you can do. First, whoever your keynoter is, have this person give them permission. This is really key. It seems subtle. When I finish a keynote, and we're, we've talked about with the organizers, we want to promote networking. I say to everyone, here's what you need to do. You need to go up to three people each day, three new people, and meet entirely new people. That's your goal. Think, well, okay, they, they knew that. They, they know they're supposed to walk up to people. But this way, what I tell them is when you do so, you can start out by saying, hey, Mark said we should meet three new people. Hi, my name's Carol. I yeah. give them that permission because it's hard to walk up to a stranger, but now they're saying, oh, well, we have to do it. We were told to do it. Yeah. So a subtle change like that can make it much easier. Another thing you can do is set up tables. It's amazing. I always try to sit with strangers at tables when I go to conferences. I don't sit with my coworkers. Most people sit with their coworkers. Yeah, sure. It's an opportunity. Set up tables and put little topics on it. Put some little table tent on and say, this is the topic of the table. And you tell people, some tables have topics. You can go sit with your coworkers if you want. But if you sit at a table with a topic, that's what everyone there is interested in that topic. You immediately yeah, yeah, yeah. in common. It's trivial. You can set up more formal things, speed networking events. You can do things. I talk about this in some articles I have on my website, how you can arrange, hey, I'm looking for these people and you're looking for, and let's figure out if we want to meet and do some speed networking, whether on an individual level or on a business development level. You yeah. can also do, so that's on the networking front. You can also do things that are more experiential. Now, some yeah. things, fun. Do fun things, do fun activities. Whatever city you're in, there is something, something they're proud of. There's some historical thing. There's some industry yeah. they're known for, whether it's, you know what, this afternoon, skip a few sessions and we're going to sponsor some tour or you yeah. get corporate sponsor to sponsor it, or even just bring in a local historian. You yeah. can find from the local college, someone from the tourist bureau, have them come in and say, let me, we're going to do a one hour talk on the history of this city. Doesn't yeah. matter what the city is. I'll probably find that interesting because by day two, I'm tired of more of these talks that thrown on and on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different. You can also do one of my favorite things is the photo booth, not the photo booth that you get at bar mitzvahs and weddings, but the professional photographer. Because most right. people, they need that LinkedIn headshot or they need the headshot for their corporate website. 
They don't yeah. have good. You can hire a photographer cheap. Everyone lines up for it. And now what happens? You give them something useful. Every yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's a useful thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, oh, I got at this conference. They're going to remember you. That's a cheap cost, but you're building memories. You're building connections to your audience. So by doing all these in-person things, by creating these experiences, people are saying, I enjoy this conference. I'm getting all the stuff out of it beyond just the content that I can get anywhere else. And I guess these are all, the great thing about, this is all things you can get people to come back, isn't it? Cause, that, cause like, that's the thing. Like you do, you, you, you've, I mean, I guess you can promote these that are gonna happen, but you know, it's only when you experience it that, you, that you're gonna wanna come back. I think these, these could really help drive return, you know, bookings for the next year. If you can create stronger networking, if that's the only thing you do, yeah, I'm gonna go back to that conference because who knows who I'm gonna meet this year. And every yeah. year, it's new people I'm going to meet. I want to be at that conference. And you can do this for effectively no cost. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's an event I've been attending for about nine years. It's, it's in Bangkok. It's, it's, it's part of, I'm actually part of a community. It's a conference connected to the community. But it's all about the people I meet and you know, the connections and stuff. And I, I go every year, you know, because it has, it, they haven't, I mean, you've, you've said a lot of great things. I don't think they're formalizing it well enough. But I mean, if you've got a community, then there's already a lot of people are interacting online anyway. So you've got a lot of that built in, you know, but I think the things you said are, are, are really useful. Um, yeah, definitely the topics on tables, I think is a great, is a great tip for people with a, with a lunch. You could do that for dinners as well. And things that people want to do that. The, 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 the photographer is a great tip, you know, it gets it's just concrete, like to get a LinkedIn headshot, people need that, you know, like it's, so it, it, it's great. A anything else, any, any closing thoughts on, on events any, any, any other things people could do? The, I would say definitely as we come out of COVID and becomes yeah. endemic and not pandemic and we get to this new status quo, talk to your customers in your polls, ask them, not just the standard things, you know, scale of one to five, what do you like? Do you like the speaker? ask more innovative questions. Ask, yeah. what would be your fantasy conference? What would be the coolest thing you've seen at any other conference or heard about? Yeah. Be wild. We really have to rethink what conferences are about and your yeah. audience will tell you, but you have to ask the right questions. So Definitely. be minded, talk to other people in the industry, talk to your customers. Feel free to talk to me. Feel free to reach out to me at any point and say, you know, I don't want to hire you. You're not right for our conference, but I just love to talk to you about these ideas. I'm always happy to talk about it because if I can make the conference industry better, the ones I go to will be better, better as well. Sounds good. Well, Mark, that's a great, great place to finish. Thank you very much. Where can people find you online? You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. There, yes, you can see where to buy my book, Amazon, other places. You can get in touch with me or follow me on social media. There's a whole bunch of great articles I put out, including some articles on event planning and management. And so you'll get some of these tips and some other ones as well. You can also download the free app I mentioned that goes with the book. And there's a resources page with a whole bunch of resources for employees and executives on how to upskill you and your team with some of the skills in the book. It's all completely free. I also reference other free online resources. So all of this is at thecareertoolkitbook.com. I very much hope to hear from you. Sounds great. Thank you very much, Mark. All the best.